Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Every great leader has an origin story. Just think about some of the classics. Remember the story of Achilles? Uh, his, his, what, he's born of a goddess and a human, uh, and, and his mother takes him to the river Styx, this mythological uh, river, and dips him into the water, all except what? All except his heel. And his invincible warrior just happens to be killed with an arrow that got hit in the exact place that his mother failed to dip him. You would have thought she would have switched like hands and like, like feet and did the other one just to cover him, but no. Alas, that's our story. Think about Tarzan. What? He's lost in the wild and raised by gorillas. Robin Hood is a, a rich young man returning from the Crusades only to find that his family has been murdered and his inheritance has been stolen from him. Alexander Dumas creates the Count of Monte Cristo. It's this story of Edmond Dantes who is betrayed by his best friend because of a woman and put in a prison to rot to die. There is a ruddy-haired baby who witnesses the murder of his parents' death by the hands of Lord Voldemort, and the rest is literary history. So every good hero has an origin story. Think about beyond normal literature. Think of comic books, of course, for me. I think of Spider-Man, Superman, and Shazam. All have these amazing origin stories. And what is the purpose of an origin story? Well, it's intended to tell us something about this character, something that's building up for something significant that's about to happen. But it also helps us as the audience to buy into this hero for what they are about to do. So it's the case for Israel's first king, Saul. So take a look at the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 1. Now what the author is going to try to do is try to build up this origin story to help us buy in that Saul is worthy to be the first king of Israel. So where are we? To catch you up if you've been missing out on this conversation. Well, uh, a few weeks back we learned that Israel completely rejects God as their king. Instead, what do they want? They want a human king. And despite all the warnings, all the things that Samuel says, not a good idea, don't do this, the people say, no, we still want a king. And so what happens in this story is that God uh, has this conversation with Samuel. Uh, They they decide how they're going to go about doing this. And some time passes, and that will be our story this morning. And so the first thing that we need to know about this king is that it's kind of interesting to be the first of all things. So how do you build up to that? How do you be appointed? And so what we'll find out this morning is that Saul is going to be confirmed as king three different ways. First, spiritually speaking. Then he's going to be confirmed communally or socially. And the third piece is he's going to be confirmed militarily, which is the exact reason why Israel wanted a king, somebody to fight their battles for them. And so this begins in 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 1 Samuel chapter 11. Don't hold your breath. We're not reading all the verses within those three chapters. But what's interesting is that these almost seem like three different stories, three different ways that Saul is confirmed of king. And so it tells us what? That scripture is an interesting narrative, that sometimes it was multiple stories that were eventually compiled together to unify us in this understanding of how Saul is appointed. And so it goes and begins in a very exciting way. It begins with a genealogy. So hold on to your seats. This is exciting. You ready for these names? There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel. 
Moms, expecting mothers, just go ahead and put that on the top of your list of names you want to do from Kish. What a beautiful name. The son of Zeror, the son of Bechareth, the son of Althea of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as a handsome young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. You know, one of the fascinating things about Scripture is we often avoid and skip over the genealogical, the genealogical list. Why? Why do we do that? We, we skip over these things, and what we do is we actually miss out on some of the most interesting things about Scripture. Take, for example, the genealogy of Jesus that's listed at the beginning of Matthew. Well, by reading this, what it tells us is that the family lineage of Jesus is quite fascinating. You have people that did both amazing things and, like, God-awful things in the story of God. What You have people in Jesus' genealogy that are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth, David, Bathsheba. Ooh, that one's kind of questionable. Sam, uh, Solomon and Uzziah. So all these names matter. Names matter. And names matter in the beginning of Saul's story. Why? The narrator tells us that he goes and he comes from the tribe of what? The tribe of Benjamin. Now for all of us Old Testament scholars, we all know what that means. But for all the rest of us, what does that mean? Well, what that means is a horrible thing. The, the Benjaminite tribe was literally viewed as the lowest tribe within Israel. Why? Well, first and foremost, they were the smallest tribe of the other 12 tribes, but also they had a bit of a shady past. Let's just put it this way. In the book of Numbers, uh, as, as rape is also not viewed in high regard in these days, in the Old Testament, it also wasn't held in high regard. But it was the tribe of Benjamin that had this almost serial rape experience that they did among other people. And so they were viewed as, what, the lowest among the tribes. So when they come into the promised land, guess who gets the least amount of land? The Benjaminites. So it's a fascinating story that the narrator is saying, this first king of Israel is coming from the most worthless tribe of Israel. That should tell us something interesting already. And so what do we learn about it? We learn that names matter. But it says that Saul comes from a great family. He comes from a man named Kish. Kish was a wealthy and powerful man. Even Saul's name contradicts the tribe he comes from. Saul's name means desired. We've all uh, had a, a recent um, reoccurring of the story of Hercules. For some reason, Hollywood can't put two and two together. And in 2014, literally released two Hercules movies from different production companies. You had one played by The Rock, and then you had another played by that guy from Twilight that had like two lines in all the four movies or five movies, whatever it was. But you got this same movie that comes out at the same time. Then you go all the way back to 1997. You remember Disney's animated edition of, of Hercules? And then, of course, you had Jason Sorbo's... Adventures of Hercules, that like terrible, terrible show that I'm sure somebody in this space I just offended because you have all the DVD sets in a specialty edition case. What's fascinating about Hercules is that we get the story wrong. Look at him. That's a good-looking guy. I mean, the rock, is a, the rock is a pretty good-looking guy. He's strong. But did you know all the way back to the origin story of Hercules, he was supposed to be this hideous beast. He was half God, half man. But for some reason, we as a culture want our heroes to be handsome. So think about this for a second. James Bond. Handsome. Indiana Jones, Han Solo, handsome. Jack Sparrow, Aragorn, uh, Maximus, Tony Stark, handsome, 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 handsome. Why? We want our heroes to be good looking. And apparently that was the case for the ancients. What 
of the ancients, they point out that Saul was tall and what? He was handsome. It's a fascinating study. Some, some people within philosophy and anthropology have done a study to show that, that people uh, who are better looking make more money and are further advanced in their fields. Why is it? What that tells us is that we are shallow people. <laughs> that we only look at the exterior of a person instead of taking time to look at the content and character of an individual. So why is Saul really bolstered as the first king? Because he was a head taller than everybody else and he was good looking. What we will learn later on is it's not what God is looking for. God is looking at the heart within an individual. And so what we learned from this is that the ancients apparently loved looks as well. But what we need to see in a good leader, as one of my favorite author puts it, Simon Sinek says, as social animals, we need leaders that make us feel that we are moving forward, that our efforts have value to a greater cause, that someone is watching out for us. Saul will not be that. But let's learn more about a story in verse 3. It says, Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to, to Saul, Take one of your servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they went on to the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then they passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them there. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look in this town. There is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what to take. So, you know, that's a really interesting story for Sunday morning, talking about a bunch of donkeys. As one of my favorite com- commentators put, it won't be the donkeys that will really show the tale of Saul, but it will show that, that Saul is the greatest jackass of them all. <laughs> learn is this tale of going to find donkeys is that Saul will literally be probably one of the worst things to happen to Israel. But it's an origin story. It's telling us that Saul goes out and he's going to find these donkeys. Now we don't know if Saul is at fault and that's why he's going to find them. What tells us is that he's looking for them for three days. So that probably tells us that Saul really was at fault because for three days trying to find these donkeys. But he goes out and he's trying to find them. He's at that point of frustration, that point where you either throw in the towel or you you push on and push beyond this. You see, Batman had Alfred, Sherlock had Holmes, Oliver Queen has John Diggle, Huckleberry Finn had Tom and Jim, Tony Stark has Pepper Potts, the X-Men had Professor X. All good heroes have someone beside them to share good wisdom, to speak sound wisdom into their lives. And that is Saul in this moment. Saul is ready to give up. He's ready to throw in the towel. But what happens in this moment is a servant speaks up and gives him a word of wisdom. So the first thing we need to learn from this text is this. We need to surround ourselves with godly people. It matters. It matters. Saul literally would have quit and gone home and missed out on the greatest chapter of his life being anointed the first king of Israel if he had not listened to the godly wisdom of his servant. Of his servant. And Saul listens to it. And because he listens to it, what happens next in our story is quite fascinating. We need to surround ourselves with godly wisdom. How often in our life do we simply turn to the people who tell us what we want to hear? 
many times have you been in conflict before? And instead of hearing a different voice, a different perspective, somebody that will say, you might want to look at it from this way, you go to the person who's going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. Paul describes this as a tickling in our ear. But it's important that we surround ourselves with godly people. It's important that we surround ourselves with people who love us, who we can trust, but can also say, you might want to think about it from this side. You might want to consider this. Too often we turn down godly wisdom and miss out on something that God desires for us. Why? Because we're listening to the truth that we've accepted within our life. We don't need to be uh, the antithesis of Saul in this moment. We need to surround ourselves with godly people to not miss out on what God desires for us. This is what happened next in the story in verse 14. It says, They went to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high and holy place. Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send the man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. I have looked to my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. You see, unlike his mentor Eli, Samuel was in tune with the voice of God. Even though the book of Samuel tells us multiple times the word of God was rare in those days, Samuel is still connected with God. That tells us something significant. It tells us something special about Samuel. That he has the ability to literally hear the voice of God and what God desires and then literally see the exact person that God is talking about. And when we see this within Samuel's life, how many of us would say, oh, that would be so nice to have. But I believe spiritual connectedness like Samuel is possible in our lives. I believe it's possible for us to hear the voice of God, for God to direct us and guide us in life, to give us the specific things that God desires for us to do. But let's look at the example of Samuel and why this takes place. Samuel had this amazing relationship with God. Why? Because he had experience with God. Literally, Samuel came into this world as a result of God. Remember, he's born to a barren woman. God brings him into this world. And then probably at the age of 10 or 12, what Samuel gives his entire life to God to serve as his servant. And then we hear that Samuel again and again speaks out, serves, and does the will and work of God. They had a history together. And as a result, Samuel loved God. You see, that's where it begins. Jesus tells us that that the thing in life, the, the goal, the primary purpose of, of why we exist and what we need to do is to do what? To love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yet we complicate life and we wonder why we can't hear the voice of God. It comes down to our love for God. You see, when we love God, then we're committing ourselves to God. We're opening ourselves up to the truth of God. We're opening ourselves up to the wisdom of God. We're investing our lives in God and God will speak to us. Samuel spent time with God. He spent time daily, I'm sure, in prayer and meditation reading the scriptures, listening to the story of God. And as a result, God spoke to him. I believe down to the depth of my core that connectedness like this is possible in our life. Look at verse 18. It says, Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer of this house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way and tell you what is in your heart. As for the donkey, you lost three days ago. Do not worry about them. They have been found. And 
And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and to your entire family line? Saul answered, but I am not a, but I but am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel and is not my clan the least among the clans of the tribe of Benjamin why do you say such things to me one of the fascinating themes within the narrative is the metamorphosis of a hero i'm i'm a sucker for stories where the hero really isn't a hero at the beginning and somehow becomes one or somehow is born into this or somehow goes through a change where this happens of course we're going to go back to comic books think about tony stark for just a second Billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. He is kidnapped and ransomed uh, for, for his money, and they force him into doing what? To build a weapon of mass destruction. But as a result of being kidnapped, he has this shrapnel put into his body, and something has to be done so that it prevents the shrapnel from going into his heart. And while he's in prison, he goes through this transformation and realizes he needs to commit his life to saving people. Oliver Queen, he's a spoiled rich kid who is destroying the lives of everyone around him with his selfishness, and he goes on this boat and gets this shipwreck and is stranded on this island for five years, and while he's there, goes through this transformation and desires to return back to his city to be the hero they need, and he becomes the Green Arrow. Well, how many times have we seen the death of Martha and Thomas Wayne in cinematic history? According to the trailer released yesterday for Superman vs. Batman, we're going to see it yet again. But it's this moment in Bruce, uh, Bruce Wayne's life that what? It changes him forever. He takes this rage and this fear and he turns it into something good. This is one of these transformational moments. One of these moments where Saul could have been something he's always going to be, apparently a donkey farmer, but now he's going to become the king of Israel. These moments happen in our life. And what it tells us is, is that God will always lead us to what is best. God will always lead us to what is best. Now, we need to be clear in that. That is what God thinks is best, maybe not necessarily what we think is best. How often in our life have we been disappointed because something didn't happen that we wanted, that we thought was best, but maybe it's not what God thought was best for us in our life. You see, when we listen to godly wisdom, when we listen to the voice of truth around us, when we're willing to do what God desires, God will bring us to what is best. Saul went out looking for donkeys, and he wound up being the first king of Israel. When we seek godly wisdom in our life, when we try to serve the will of God, God will bring us to what is best. Paul put it this way in the book of Romans. He said, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit itself will intercede for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. Here's the key right here. And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Notice Paul didn't say God works for the good, the good of everyone. He said God works for the good of those who love him, who are trying to live according to his purpose. God will bring us to the best place. Now what happens next in the text is, we'll just summarize it in this way. Let's summarize two chapters in this. Saul will be anointed as the first king by Samuel. And then in the next chapter, this interesting thing happens where Samuel gathers all the people together and they decide they're going to cast lots. Basically imagine like religious dice that they throw by a holy person and by throwing these dice in the right way they would understand what's going to happen. And guess what tribe is picked? The tribe of Benjamin. Guess what person is picked? Saul. 
Saul. And Saul is embraced by the king. But then Saul needs to be confirmed one more way, militarily. And this is what happens in chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to them, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out your right eye for every one of you and bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send a messenger throughout Israel. And if anyone comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Military acts of cruelty are are not a thing of of contemporaries. It is a thing of the past. One of the most horrific things that we can think about within the U.S. history um, is the treatment of the Native American people. After we stole their land and after we uh, continued to kill them through the diseases we brought into their tribes and after we took advantage of them economically, uh, the U.S. government decided, let's take all the Native Americans and push them out west. And the most famous stories of this is the Cherokee Trail of Tears, where 16,000 Cherokees set out by military guidance over 1,200 miles to this new area. And roughly 5,000 Cherokees died along the way. And the stories from the Trail of Tears is absolutely horrific. Families having to leave loved ones dead out in the elements because they weren't given time for a proper burial. Mothers literally having to hold their children dying because the mother was malnutritious, malnutrition and was not able to produce milk to provide for her children. One particular uh, Cherokee woman wrote in her journal that people were driven like cattle and whipped along the way. And she also later wrote in her journal, she remember witnessing the, the horror of watching the U.S. soldiers toss babies into the river or beat them against a tree because they were crying too much out of starvation. It's absolutely horrific. Military acts of cruelty are unspeakable. And just think of the things that we are capable of doing as human beings. And that's what the Ammonites are trying to do in this moment. You see, the Ammonites come into this, this town and they basically say, we're going to defeat you. And the people are like, whoa, 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 let us make a treaty with you. And the guy's like, we'll make a treaty with you. How about this? We're going to gouge out your right eye. Then we'll be square. Basically what that means is we're going to mutilate your body and we're going to make it impossible for you to later revolt against us because you will not have the hand-eye coordination to fight against us. But the Ammonites agree to this, this stupid condition. They say, we'll give you seven days to go find somebody to come and defend you. And this is where Saul will be confirmed in the final way militarily. Saul will raise 300,000 troops and, and come down on the Ammonites and then be crowned yet again as king. But the thing about this narrative is this, is that this narrative is overshadowed by the future failings of Saul. Because Saul will be a horrible king. So with all this glory, we still have this horrible moment with Saul. One of the greatest uh, moments in literary history, I remember this favorite story all the way from back when I was a kid. Homer tells us about the Trojan War. You remember this tale? It says, for ten years, the Greek allies fought against the city of Troy. To no avail, they they weren't able to accomplish this. And so eventually the the Greek allies leave. And the Trojan spies come back and say, the Greeks have left our shores. Uh, It's time to celebrate. But before the Greeks left, what do they do? They busted up their ships and they built this monument of a horse to leave for their victorious foe. And so the Trojans do what? They drag the horse into the middle of town. That night they throw this huge celebration with dancing and drinking. And then they completely pass out. And then one by one, the Greeks begin to slip down from ropes within the horse, and Troy is defeated from within. 
You see, that's the story of Saul. While we have this great moment where this first king is anointed, Saul will be the Trojan horse of Israel. He will be the worst thing to happen to them. So what I want us to take away from this text is this. Despite human failings like Saul, God can still do great things. Despite our failures, despite Saul's failures, despite the people not willing to listen to God and to listen to Samuel in this moment, God is still going to do great things. Do we believe that for our life? Do we believe that God can do great things despite us? Do we believe that God can do great things despite the mistakes that other people make around us? You see, that's what we learn from this narrative. That God is great despite humanity's failings. You see, in this moment, in the failures of Saul, we see the king that we shouldn't have. We see a king that will eventually tax the people to force the men into serving in the army, to force the women to come and serve in his palace, to eventually start to kill the people around him, to begin to break his own laws out of his jealousy and envy for David. Despite all that, we still see the king that we should need for our life. It's a king that doesn't take our enemies and destroy them, but it's a king that extends grace and mercy to our enemies. It's a king that challenges us to to be a person of hope and peace in this world. That's the king that we need. That's the king we need for our lives. He's described in the Bible as simply this, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, Emmanuel, Almighty God, the Alpha, the Omega, the First and the Last, the Great Shepherd, the Head of the Church, the Truth, the Bread of Life, and Living Water, the Lord of Lord. That is the King we need for our life. Yet we still pick Saul's and the Saul's of our life as King. And so may this text challenge us this morning to this. May we see the failures around us and yet choose the God who doesn't fail. May we see the kings that we anoint in our life and remove those crowns and instead place them at the feet of a God who desires to rule us and to guide us in ways of hope and peace and love. What kind of king do you want? Do you want a Saul or do you want a Jesus? Let's pray together.